What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks, Frank, very much. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Encouraging signs on the inflation front. The market now seeing an 80% probability of a rate cut in March, but our market guest doesn't see that happening. He does see, however, plenty of opportunities despite that, and he'll tell us where. Plus oil spiking, Tesla production disrupted because of Red Sea turmoil, the U.S. responding with strikes in Yemen. Yemen has vowed to retaliate, so what happens next? We'll talk to former NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, Admiral James Stavridis. And we're heading to the intersection of AI and real estate. Three ways investors can take advantage of what our guest calls massive opportunities ahead. But we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu with the numbers. Hi, Dom. A fresh 52-week high for the S&P 500, Tyler. That's the big story for the S&P today. But we have backed off those levels. At those highs of the session, the S&P 500 was at 48.02. And at the lows of the session, 47.68. So again, tilting towards maybe the lower end of that range so far. Just about flat if you want to look at it in percentage terms. The Dow Industrial is down about one half of 1% here. And the Nasdaq composite just about flat on the session as well. So if you take a look at the S&P, yes, fresh highs for the year. But we have, again, backed back from some of those levels. So we'll see if that momentum changes in the afternoon. Another place to keep a close eye on what's happening with the oil complex overall. Because currently, U.S. benchmark West Texas intermediate prices are still up nearly 1% to $72.61. But as things stand right now, we are at just about the lows of the session. We are up north of $75, just around $75.25 at the highs of the session so far, so significantly below those levels on some of the tensions in the Middle East tied to those strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen by the U.S. and U.K. and its allies. So, again, WTI crude is still just down about 24 percent from the highs that we saw over the course of the past year. And then if you take a look at some of the individual stories making names and making moves here, it's got to be about the big banks kicking off earnings season. I know that you're going to talk much more about this later on in the show. But just to give you a check on what's happening, we have seen broader moves lower across the board, except for Citigroup, which is holding on to three quarter of one percent gains here. J.P. Morgan Chase now slipping in the red Bank of America down about one and a quarter percent and Wells Fargo down three and a half percent. So, again, banks, a big story. We got more of them coming up next week. Ty, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, I'll see you in a little bit. Uh, Thanks very much. Today's economic data has investors squarely focused on the March Fed meeting. That is when they price in uh, the central bank's first rate cut. They think it's coming. Steve Leisman has the details. Steve, welcome. You know, as I look at this today's inflation number, I guess it's a little more encouraging than yesterday's, which uh, another network characterized as, quote, skyrocketing inflation. I didn't see it that way. Did you? No, it was a a miss to the upside. But it was really interesting, Tyler, to see the way the market traded it, a little spooky at the very beginning yesterday after the 8.30 number, but then it kind of calmed down, and I wonder if it was sort of looking forward to this. Now, if you look at the story, the producer price index came in below expectations at minus 0.1%. Why all the focus on it? Well, it suggests little inflationary pressure up the supply chain. It prompts economists to estimate the Fed's preferred inflation indicator, the core PCE, 
will come in at 26 to 3% year over year. But wait, there's better news. One and a half to 2% on a three-month annualized basis. That is, it would hit the inflation's target. Before PPI, the uh, probability of a March cut was 69, shot up to 80%, where it's trading about now. Ian Shepherdson from Pantheon says, actually answers Tyler's question, says the PPI is far more, far more important than yesterday's slightly disappointing core CPI numbers. Core PCE is what matters for the Fed, and these data will increase the pressure on policymakers to ease soon. The two years saw it, felt it. You saw yields decline by up to, what do you want to call it, uh, uh, 15 basis points at one point, now down about, oh, oh, I don't know, 13 or 14 from where it started before the number. There's still two PCE numbers, two CPI numbers, two PPI reports to come before the March meeting, and there should be or could be some upside risk to inflation. You have supply disruptions and higher energy prices and shipping costs linked to the conflict in the Middle East. But if current inflation numbers do continue, it's going to be hard, I think, Tyler, for the Fed to either not cut in March or at least guide in March towards a rate cut that would be coming at a future meeting. What is the incentive for the Fed to cut in March if the economy's doing well, employment is fine, uh, inflation is okay, but still maybe a little above the, the target range of 2%? What's the real incentive? I think that's a good question. I think, Tyler, there is a window for the Fed to pivot and get this right rather than remain too restrictive for too long. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you're right that there is some momentum to the economy that gives the Fed some time here. But there's a whole lot of uh, uh, loans out there and refinancings in corporate America uh, that are going to be coming due. And companies are going to be laying off people, shutting down, otherwise having to sell if they have to refinance into the highest possible rates. The Fed has an opportunity to offer some relief to the economy. Think about it. If, if you consider that there's a long-run funds rate of 2.5 and the Fed is at 538 or 540, it is very restrictive right now. So there is room for the Fed to offer some relief and secure that soft landing because that's not a given either. All right, Steve. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. Appreciate it, my friend. Pleasure. All righty, uh, our next guest says the Fed is unlikely to deliver the cuts the market is hoping for, but that doesn't mean there is not opportunity to be had. He's bullish on two sectors in particular. We'll get to them in a moment, both in the news today, energy and banks. Joining us now, Cole Smead, president at Smead Capital Management. Cole, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to see you, Tyler. Thank you. You heard what Steve just said, and that is that there's a high, the, the market is pricing in a rather high probability of a rate cut in March. You say that the Fed looks unlikely to be able to cut the way the markets are hoping. I don't know whether that means uh, throughout 2024 or just that March number. Why don't you explain your position and why you feel the way you do? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Tyler. So to, to Steve's point, he was just mentioning, you know, let's say refinancings are coming up, Okay. Let's ask ourselves what kind of businesses would be impacted from those refinancings at higher rates. Okay, so let's use, just use commercial office as an example. Are there commercial office buildings that will not be able to go through that process? They will hand the keys back to the banks. No question about that. The only issue is there's not many employees that are tied to those businesses. They're asset-based businesses. They're not labor-based businesses. So I think the idea that the tight rates are going to restrict the U.S. economy in a major way I think we've proven for about 18 months that that's just, to your, to your point, what's the incentive that the Fed has? Um, we're running very tight rates, and the economy continues to churn um, and, and kind of move along. So I, I think the interesting part, really, for this whole dialogue is if tight rates can't stop the economy, 
should the Fed be backing off at all? Um, should they have uncomfortability to not be lowering rates quicker? And if you look back to the last 18 months, I think you'll see that the fool has been the one praying for lower rates. I mean, 2022 uh, and 2023 uh, had touches of, gosh, we're going to go to a lot lower rates. And that crowd's just been foolish for 18 months. And so it, it, when, when is that uh, idea going to change? When is the idea the economy is going to have precipitous problems suddenly? When is that ideology mm-hmm. going to change? Until that does, you can see where the bias is across really equity investors, particularly, but bond investors as well. I guess Steve's retort might be, based on what he just said to me, was is the idea that what the Fed doesn't want to do is wait too long and keep rates too high for too long and therefore miss that window, that, that landing slot that leads to the so-called soft landing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point by Steve. Um, I, the, you got to remember, though, the problem wasn't created by the Fed. In other words, the Fed, to Steve's point, mm-hmm. was late to deal with it and therefore is going to want to prove themselves, I'll say both politically as well as from an academic and data perspective, that, that, that they're not going to do something foolish on the backside. But this is federal government largesse to the tune bigger than World War II relative to our GDP. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we've, we've opened Pandora's box in federal spending. And the question is, how do you put that back in? Spending is very popular on the left side of the aisle and the right side of the aisle. That's not going to go away. I'm not talking about spending like in Ukraine. I'm talking about federal transfers. I'm talking about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the big spending categories where we run our biggest deficits. Let's uh, fast forward to a couple of stock sectors that you like. And and you point out, I think, uh, quite accurately that an awful lot of last year's movement in the markets was not so much earnings driven as it was uh, valuation driven, P.E. ratios. But a couple of of, uh, sectors of the market that did not take part last year are banking and energy. Uh, Tell us why those are two areas that you have your eye on this year and what specific stocks you like in those sectors. Yeah, it's a great question. To start out with energy, um, it's weird. You've been in this business for a long time, Tyler. Usually when stocks go on great two or three year tears, um, like the energy stocks did coming off the bottom from 2020, usually every investor figures out a way to own it, get excited about mm-hmm. it. And that's just the nature of the stock market. And oddly, even though they've done really well and you know they underperformed last year, um, we really haven't had that movement where large institutional investors all decide that they want to have a lot more of their capital into that. And I think the particular reason why is because the index doesn't. Mm-hmm. The benchmark hugging and the index world hasn't really fallen in love with it. Therefore, the active investors have not. So the, the fact that we can wake up in a world today where we can make, say, 20 to 25 percent return on equity in these businesses, pay very low P.E. multiples um, and pay very low book multiples versus the market, which is making, in many cases, maybe somewhat higher return on equity but far higher multiples for that return on equity, it's just a great place to be. And use the, the Houthi, you know, uh, 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 your, your colleague was talking prior about the Houthi rebels this morning. You get a, you get a hedge on geopolitical risk that mm-hmm. you just don't get in other parts of the market. And I think that's something that as we wake up to what is this new world we're in where a major former power like Russia can go in and do direct conflict, not proxy wars, mm-hmm. that's a different world than my childhood. And therefore, we have to think about that risk very differently. Yeah. On the banking side... Yeah, let's get um, to the banks because thought- I think it's interesting that that you are... High- we're going to talk about the bigger banks in just a moment, but you highlight some of the more mid-sized regional banks. Why? Yeah, because there's catastrophe that's taken place there. Um, in other words, the idea that every regional bank had trouble is just not true. Um, obviously, we know who already disappeared, and it doesn't mean that every regional bank is going to deal with the circumstances. 
appropriately going forward. There, like I mentioned, there's going to be commercial buildings that are going to go empty and need a new owner, and the banks can be holding that. I think the question, you know, we, mm-hmm. we looked a lot at the insider buying in the banks. That's what attracted us uh, to some of the names you see there, like Fifth Third and M&T particularly. Um, we, we also bought Western Alliance, which was really at the heart and center of that bank run back in the spring. And what we think they have is they have a history of producing great return right. on capital in a bank. And they're, they're, not a, they're not a retail bank. It's a, it's a commercial bank. They're dealing with commercial customers. And so we admittedly come to people and say, listen, we're going to lose a third of the banks in the United States over the next decade. But what that produced in the past was higher returns. And this environment looks good for banks because they can just charge more for the risk that yeah. they get today versus right. in lower rates, they, they got paid less for risk. We have to leave it there. Cole, I'll see you soon, my friend. Thank you. Yep. See you soon. Thanks, Tyler. Cole Smead. All right. Big banks under pressure after some very, uh, I guess they call it noisy earnings today. Uh, most of them taking a hit on one-time charges related to special assessments from the FDIC and other areas uh, following the collapse of Silicon Bank, Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Next guest uh, says he still sees opportunities in financials this year. Uh, joining us now, Chris Katowski, Senior Research Analyst at Oppenheimer. Chris, welcome. Good to have you with us. Why, of the four banks that reported today, Morgan, uh, City, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, why is City the only one that's higher and it is the only one that reported a loss? The others all had profits. What, explain. Well, the city loss was driven primarily by some of those special items that you uh, you, you highlighted, the, the FDIC charge. And then they also had some kind of one-off charges on Russia and, and Argentina that they disclosed earlier in the day. You know, overall, I'd say the core fundamentals for the for all the banks that reported today for the the fourth quarter were actually pretty close to uh, you know what what we were expecting certainly so I don't think there were any real fundamental surprises were there any uh, disappointments here that would explain why uh, this these four banks with the exception of city are all trading lower today not not by a well, ton but a little yeah I mean I, I guess I'd say there was a range uh, I, I would say J.P. Morgan's guidance on net interest income for the year ahead was slightly better than previously expected. Mm-hmm. Wells Fargo's was slightly worse. Uh, and then if I if I look at Citi's guidance specifically, uh, they had given very vague guidance about 24 previously. Previously, what they'd been telling people is that, oh, the expense curve is going to bend uh, late in 2024. But how much is it going to bend from what from what baseline is it going to bend and stuff like that was was unanswered before. And, you know, the guidance they gave for 24 today was kind of our estimates are slightly above consensus. And the guidance they gave today was that, you know, our our revenue estimates were kind of at the low end of their range Mm -hmm. and our expense estimates are kind of at the high end of the range. So, you know, they're they're giving pretty good guidance compared to consensus. And then there's also further guidance that in 2025, expenses should be down a bit further. So I think the what, what the street is taking away from all that is that they're, they're having confidence that during 24 and 25, you're going to see kind of stepwise progress to their intermediate term goals of a 11 to 12% return on equity. What's going to get just to what's put gonna, that 11 to 12% into context? That's roughly 10 bucks a share. What what is going to get investors excited about these banks? Here you see 
Um, a company like J.P. Morgan Chase, record profits uh, up 32 percent to nearly 50 billion dollars for the year last year. And yet these these stocks, which seem to be doing uh, these stocks, don't seem to be mo moving, even though the companies are doing really relatively well. Yeah, well, that's what creates the opportunity. Right. And it's, it's interesting. You know, I covered two different groups. I cover the uh, alternative asset managers and the banks, and they're, they're all engaged in wholesale finance. And, you know, a lot of the regulatory pressures, they have been putting pushing assets out of the banking system and over towards the alternatives. And, you know, we can debate all day whether that's right or wrong or good or bad. But what it has done is it's made the banks less risky. It's created a lot of opportunities for, for the alternative asset managers. And what's, what's interesting is that last year, the average uh, of the alternative uh, asset managers, they were up by roughly 50 percent. Uh, and and the banks were 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 down eight or ten percent on average, you know, in a market that was generally up. So, you know, it's uh, to you know what your prior guest Cole said. Um, uh, you know, you you have to also be sensitive to valuation. That mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. these stocks are a a an extraordinary uh, value relative to uh, the market uh, multiples. And again, they've been de-risked, uh, but. I will tell you, I think there are a lot of institutional investors that just don't want to hear about banks because <laughs> they just don't. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. You know? yeah. And that, that's kind of what creates the opportunity. But, yeah. but uh, you know, there are so many times when I've gone into um, a meeting with uh, institutional investors and then, uh, you know, our salesperson comes to me beforehand and says, you know, here's their exposure to financials. And you look at it and it's, MasterCard and Visa and Schwab and, and and Blackstone and you know companies like that and and the upshot of it is oh gee they don't own any banks uh, yeah, yeah and and there are more and more accounts that have fallen into that category in in the last couple we of years. shall see what 2024 holds thank you so much for your insights today Chris appreciate it thank, thank you Chris Katowski with Oppenheimer and don't miss our exclusive interview with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan that's at 2 p.m. Eastern today on Power Lunch coming up from the Fed from the Fed from the Red Sea to Yemen and this weekend's presidential election in Taiwan geopolitical events front and center for investors as we start the year up next we will ask our panel of experts what those uh, geopolitical items mean for the US plus the long-awaited approval of spot Bitcoin ETFs Finally here, Robinhood's chief brokerage officer will bring us new numbers on their popularity with Robinhood shares coming off their best month on record, though down 5% today. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNN. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Geopolitics front and center today as Houthi forces vow to retaliate to, for last night's U.S.-led coalition strikes in Yemen. It's raising the risk of a broader conflict in the Middle East, but it's uh, not the only geopolitical event investors are watching this weekend. Tomorrow's presidential election in Taiwan is another, and it could become a key test not just for relations in the region, but for U.S.-China relations as well. Here to discuss is former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis and AEI Senior Fellow Derek Scissors. Let's begin with last night's strike, uh, Admiral Stavridis, uh, which sent oil prices higher by 3% overnight. Uh, so uh, this was something, by the way, that you, admirals called for uh, about a week ago in an op-ed. So... Tell us why this was the way to go now. Yeah, it's a bad pair of choices, right? But uh, door number one is just allow the Houthis, backed by Iran, to continue to take down merchant ships, uh, shoot at our warships, at merchant ships, take mariners hostage. That's a pretty bad door, considering they are shutting down the Red Sea, and about 15% of world shipping passes through there. Door number one, bad, just to let them keep going. Uh, your other choice is create some deterrence. Um, we've tried defending those ships, hasn't really worked. It's like trying to patrol the state of California, Red Sea, size of California, with 10 police cars. Those would be the destroyers out there really not going to work. You're going to have to go ashore, strike some of the Houthi maritime infrastructure, send them a signal, reduce their capability. I think the administration is in the right page, even recognizing the chance that this could escalate further. What do these strikes say to or about Iran? Uh, first of all, they are a direct signal to Tehran. And by the way, it's not just the Houthis, it's all of the H's. It's Hamas, Hezbollah, and Houthis. They all have different agendas, different geographies, what they have in common. They're all creatures of Iran. So striking significant Houthi maritime infrastructure, it's proportional to these maritime attacks. It's well within the range of international law. It sends a signal to Iran that we're going to start at the low rung on this ladder of escalation. Pay attention. Let's hope Tehran is listening. What if these uh, these attacks don't do the trick and the Houthis uh, come back and keep misbehaving in the Red Sea? Then what is the next step up? You can go up that ladder still in Houthi land, if you will, in the country of Yemen, which they own about half of. They're in the middle of a civil war. They have land assets. Their tanks, armored personnel carriers, their fuel, their ammunition. We could go after the means by which they are fighting this civil war. If that doesn't work, which would be your next question, mm -hmm. then I think you need to look at going after some Iranian assets. Boy, let's hope we don't get there, because down that path, a wider conflict exists. I think at this point, the Houthis will probably come back another couple of times. Then they'll probably stop. That's what happened last time we went through this cycle in 2016. We struck Houthi targets ashore. They backed down. Let's yeah. hope we see that again. Let's pivot, uh, if we might, to Taiwan and the elections there this weekend and get your quick thought on uh, on what may happen there, if particularly um, 
I guess the more, I guess I would say, confrontational candidate, William Lai, uh, is elected as president there. What, what does that portend, not just for Taiwan-China relations, but for U.S.-China relations? Yeah, this is the right question. I mean, we're all absorbed with what's happening in the Middle East. In the end, those are pretty much likely to be tactical. This is the big geostrategic amphitheater, the arena, U.S. and China. I think that William Lai probably will be elected. He's a follow-on to Madam Tsai, the current president. Their policies are not exactly anti-China, but they are further away from China than either of the other two candidates. The thing to watch as investors is immediately after the election, if Lai is the candidate, how high, how hard does China go at Taiwan? They're not going to attack, of course, but are they going to put in a partial blockade? Are they going to open up uh, additional maritime capability around Taiwan? Are they going to shoot missiles that just miss Taiwan? Are they going to send aircraft across the Taiwanese Strait? We're all going to be watching those reactions after Saturday. That's interesting. So look for a variety, potentially, of provocative actions on the part of uh, Beijing. Admiral, it's always good to see you. Thank you for joining us today. You bet, Tyler. Admiral James Stavridis. Uh, And as we're waiting for that election in Taiwan, we just got more data out of China on its economy. The country's annual exports dropped for the first time in seven years, even as shipments in December beat expectations. China's consumer price index also declined down three-tenths of a percent. Wouldn't we like to see that here? That was less than half uh, percent of the fall seen in November. For more here, let's turn to AEI's Derek Scissors. Mr. Sisters, welcome. Good to have you with us. How healthy is the Chinese economy based on what you see out of these numbers? First time exports have fallen in seven years. Yeah, it's it's not healthy. I want to start by saying there's no crisis here. People have been using the word crisis a little loosely uh, as applied to 2023. And there's no crisis. But that doesn't mean the Chinese economy is healthy. Um, You have disinflation, meaning that you have falling inflation to the point where people are starting to worry well, are we going to get outright deflation? So far, that's only in the property sector. But if it spreads, uh, that's, a, that's harm to Chinese growth. Uh, a little bit of a nerdy statistic, narrow money M1 only rose 1.5% for the year, according to the People's Bank. It's really hard to have fast growth with that kind of narrow money growth. That, that suggests when China announced 5% GDP growth, it's an exaggeration. And on the trade side, I think the thing to look for is China's exports fell, but they still ran an $800 billion goods trade deficit. Yeah. They really can't push that. If they push that for the sake of, of their own growth, they're going to get foreign retaliation. And that is a risk for the market. They haven't done it yet, but $800 billion should be as high as they go. If they try to stimulate exports, I think the U.S. and other countries will respond. Let's talk a little bit about whether there is stimulus in the pipe. You, you sort of hinted at it right there, that they can't push their export economy uh, because of the risk of retaliation from the U.S. and others. But, but what about trying to stimulate the domestic economy in one way or another? Is that in the pipeline, and what form might that stimulation take? Well, they have two, if they don't just target exports, and again, I don't think they will, they have two basic kinds of, of stimulus, fiscal and monetary. Uh, on the monetary side, uh, they've tried. They've cut borrowing costs, and it just hasn't worked. Loan growth is slowing. It's still pretty fast. It's over 10%, but it's slowing. And as I said, narrow money M1 is very slow. So you'd have to try out sort of bigger monetary bazooka, which is something they haven't wanted to do because of debt worries. 
And on the fiscal side, China has never really had effective fiscal stimulus. People think that's what happened in 2008 and 2009, but it was actually monetary. So that would be sort of an experiment. I think you might get an experiment in fiscal stimulus. And there the challenge is, are you stimulating consumers, which is what you want, or are you just stimulating companies? Mm -hmm. uh, because that just means more production that nobody wants, more, more production that nobody buys. More yeah, exactly. If you just stimulate yeah. the company, yeah. then they do what they do, which is make more. But if there's no buyers there, they're not going to make profit, I guess. Let, if, could we turn back to what we talked about with uh, Admiral Stavridis there, and that is your perspective on these Taiwan elections over the weekend. What, do, what, are, you, what are you watching there? Well, I just, you know, this is maybe a little bit too uh, optimistic on my side. Um, this is a, the most likely outcome, as the admiral said, is a continuation of the current government under the Democratic, uh, the DPP. And um, China knows that. Xi Jinping has been, of course, in power for 11 years. We know there are going to be threats. We know there are going to be demonstrations of force. Uh, but we've kind of seen this movie before. And I, I don't think you're going to get an escalation by China because they've spent the past few weeks really emphasizing that there was a new understanding between Xi Jinping and President Biden uh, in the San Francisco meetings. It would be very odd if they took an expected political outcome in Taiwan and, and upset that new understanding they've been emphasizing by going beyond what they've done before. They're going to act. It's going to make people nervous, but it, it do, it's not setting up right now for the Chinese to go to take a big step further and really scare markets and, and everyone in the region. And be excessively provocative. Derek, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Have a good weekend. You too. Derek Scissors of AEI. Coming up, NVIDIA trading at a record high and on pace for its best week since March. But with shares up 230% over the past year, should investors expect a, a repeat rally? We'll debate uh, NVIDIA. Everybody's debating NVIDIA on The Exchange. We'll be back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Kate Rogers with your CNBC News Update. Federal prosecutors will seek the death penalty against the white gunman who killed 10 black people in a racist shooting at a Buffalo supermarket in 2022. In a court filing today, the Justice Department said the shooter's intentional killing was enough justification to warrant the death penalty. The shooter was already sentenced to life in prison in a New York state court last year. NASA says 2023 was the warmest year on record. The Earth was about two and a half degrees warmer last year than when record keeping began in the late 1800s. The extreme temps also set off costly weather events for the year. As NASA's administrator says, it's the latest evidence the world is facing a climate crisis. And the canopy that hangs over the main altar in St. Peter's Basilica is being restored. The Vatican announced it will be completed in time for Pope Francis's 2025 Jubilee and that the church will use the expertise of the restorers at the Vatican Museum and it will be the first thorough work on the canopy in 250 years. Tyler, back over to you. All right, Kate, thank you very much. Coming up, Robinhood benefited from last year's boom in Bitcoin prices, but... Will the approval of Bitcoin ETFs spark a similar rally? We'll get the latest trading data from Robinhood's chief brokerage officer next. 
And as we head back to break, here's a look at the worst performers in the S&P 500. United, American, Delta Airlines all down 7, almost 8 percent, maybe even more. Uh, after Delta trimmed its full-year earnings forecast, citing fuel costs, supply chain challenges. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Bitcoin ETFs had a big first day. More than $4.6 billion worth of trades were made yesterday across almost a dozen U.S. Bitcoin ETFs, marking a historical first day of trading. But SEC Chair Gary Gensler reminding investors today to be cautious. Well, look, uh, Bitcoin itself, we did not approve. We do not endorse. This is a product called an exchange-traded product, a way uh, that investors can invest in that underlying non-security commodity called Bitcoin. But yes, investors, I think, should be uh, aware that this the underlying asset is a highly speculative, volatile asset. For more here, let's bring in Robinhood's chief brokerage officer, Steve Quirk, along with our very own Kate Rooney. Kate, take it away. Hey, Tyler. Thanks so much. So, Steve, it's great to see you first. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your time today. I do want to start on Chair Gensler's comments you just heard about Bitcoin ETFs and then Vanguard saying, look, these ETFs, they don't align with a balanced portfolio. They're just not going to allow it. Do you have any of those same fears around investor protection? Um, we don't, I mean, we're always making, we always want to ensure that um, whatever we're offering our customers is suitable, but um, I think they've made it very clear that they think this, uh, there's a segment of our, our customers that feel that this is an, an important technology and asset class that um, has a future. And as a result, they want it to be a portion of their portfolio. And they've expressed my- that. Yes. Oh, so, sorry to cut you off, Steve. I, this is maybe more oh, of a that's... philosophical question, but do you think there's a time and a place for a brokerage firm to step in? Is it ever a point or is there a role of a brokerage firm to come in and say at some point, hey, this might be too risky. We're just not going to allow it. Would you guys ever do that? Um, well, I think if 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 something is not suitable for a person, you know, we will make that determination and they will make that determination. Um, but I think lar- our place largely is as a self-directed uh, platform for investors is to provide them uh, the choice to make uh, the investment decisions that they choose to do, provided that they are suitable to them. Um, it's their money after all. So I think they have uh, the latitude to make those decisions, if assuming that it's a suitable investment. And Steve, what does demand look like so far? Can you share any of the statistics you're yeah. seeing around these uh, ETF flows so far? It's been really interesting and, and kind of exciting. And, and look, the approval of these is, I think, very beneficial um, for not only retail customers and traders, but also for the industry as a whole. Um, if I could like generalize what our customer base looks like, a third of the people are very passionate and very, um, very invested in in crypto, whether directly or through ETFs. A third are curious, and they continue to um, to dabble in crypto, some portion of their portfolio. And a third are, are probably they might not um, they might not have a portion of their portfolio in this. So what this does for our customers is gives them an avenue to be able to do it in in a way that they're more comfortable with an exchange traded product in an ETF format, something that, you know, these are the most popular instruments in the world. 
um, trading and investing in instruments in the world. So it gives them some comfort and 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 it, they can do it in a, a very cost efficient manner, which is um, exactly what they're looking for. And so from a behavioral standpoint, here's what we saw. Um, a third of the people that participated in buying one of these 11 um, new ETFs uh, actually sold some equity. So basically what they did is rebalance their portfolio. 20% of these purchases or sales happen in a retirement account. And we think that's quite interesting. And finally, the other thing that was quite interesting was uh, uh, GBTC, the great scale one, um, was an, it was a net sell across uh, Robinhood, both in retirement and self-directed. And what those people did was rolled into one of the other ones. And I believe that was just uh, a direct um, result of just trying to be more cost efficient because uh, from a from an overall cost standpoint, um, the, the other 10 are, are probably much more cost efficient and they have a better um, tracking record. So, Steve, I want to come back to the word that you used several times in your answer to Kate's first couple of questions, and that was suitable, whether mm -hmm. the, this investment is suitable for your customer base, mm -hmm. whether it is suitable for, for individuals. And clearly, you must believe that it is suitable for retirement accounts because you said, I believe, that 20 percent of people uh, people's trades in these ETFs were in retirement accounts. So you, you see it as a suitable thing. My question is, how do you determine suitability? Who, who determines it? Do you? Does the customer determine it by sort of self-definitionally? Oh, yeah, this yeah. is suitable for me. Hey, I'm great. I'm yeah. good, man. Let, yeah. let, me, let me add it. How does, no, how does no, suitability no, work in the real world? Um, suitability, well, I mean, obviously suitability amongst different asset classes is different. You know, like suitability among equities, options, crypto is very different. But in the case of crypto, the suitability there is determined by the, the user. So they de determine whether this investment is something that they have um, the confidence in making part of their portfolio, whether that's in self-directed or in a retirement account. So it's basically a self-test. Exactly. All right. Steve, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Kate Rooney, thank you as well for bringing Steve to us. We appreciate it. Coming up, NVIDIA up 12% this week. Just another week for NVIDIA. Shrugging off China concerns. So could the stock and the rest of mega cap tech deliver another big year? That's the topic of today's Tech Check when we return in two minutes. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Shares of NVIDIA soaring this week after its already 240% gain last year. Now, is this a sign the stock could see another banner year? Dieter Boza has that angle in today's Tech Check. Hi, Dee. Hey, Tyler. It's quite a change in tone from the first week of the year when tech was very much under pressure. It was short, though, but part of that sort of deflation air coming out was the air coming out of the NVIDIA story. Export controls restricting China sales, reports that Chinese consumers didn't want its downgraded silicon. Now, that's still in the backdrop, but as B of A puts it this morning, NVIDIA is just NVIDIA. And by one measure, you could argue that the stock is still cheap. Consider NVIDIA versus Amazon. Amazon trades at around 41 times its projected 12-month earnings, while NVIDIA trades at just 26 times. Both of these are AI beneficiaries, but one undisputably dominates its market, while the other is still making its case to investors. Put another way, yes, NVIDIA shares, they more than tripled last year, but that 
actually lagged fundamental growth of the business. Earnings nearly quadrupled. The tech rally this week, I also want to note that it is broader than just NVIDIA. Other chip names, Marvell and Broadcom, getting some buzz out of CES and helping push up the semi-space software too, settling into that new normal that we talked about earlier this week and new opportunities emerging. The IGV software ETF up nearly 6% since Monday and the deal chatter that continues to roll in. This week alone, we had HPE and Juniper. That was an unexpected deal. And there's now reports of private equity looking into PagerDuty and DocuSign. Now, of course, upcoming earnings, we got to mention those. That could derail all of this optimism from this week. 2024 guides, they will be key. And that is where worries could come in anew and investors could start to take a hard look at some of these early gains that I just outlined. One name that I will end on, guys, Apple, after... Perhaps the roughest start to the year of all the mega caps. It also got some buzz this week. Goldman actually naming it a top pick into earnings. We broke down its AI proposition in our weekly deep dive. Be sure to catch that at cnbc.com slash tech check weekly. Tyler. All right, Dieter, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Coming up, our next guest calls it one of the most transformational moments in time. She's talking about AI and its impact on commercial real estate. This is one of the names she sees positioned for big gains in that area, and she has two more. We'll give them to you next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. There are about 2,500 data centers in the U.S. powering the Internet and enabling digital communication right now. But with the rise of AI, that number is expected to grow significantly, and there's a way to trade it. Digital Realty and Equinix, I hope I'm saying that right, are the two biggest players uh, in the space right now. But our next guest, who is going to be able to tell me whether I was right, says others in commercial real estate are poised to benefit, and she's here to tell us which ones. Let's bring in Laurel Durkee, head of global listed real assets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Laurel, welcome. Good to have you with us. In all of commercial real estate, all of it, is this the place to be? data centers? This is absolutely the place to be. When you think about the trends that are unfolding within artificial intelligence and the impact that's going to have on demand for data centers, the, the growth is going to be more robust than anything we have seen over the past two decades. So how much, quantify that for me, how, how much growth are we going to see? If, if we're at X now, we're going to be at X times by when? Over the next five years, I think you're going to begin to see what I will call a transformational moment for data center demand. This is ultimately going to require billions and billions of dollars of new capital investment into the space that will transform the market. And, and really grow the, the cash flows of these companies in a way that we haven't seen before. So, and this is being driven by AI. So who are the big players in this area and which ones do you favor? So a pure play data center company that really is in the bull's eye of artificial intelligence development for data centers is Digital Realty, ticker DLR. Digital has grown significantly over the past 20 years. They IPO'd back in 2004, and since their period, since their IPO, they have grown at about an 18 to 20 percent Hager. Whoa. Whoa. That is significantly in excess of other REITs and, and even in excess of the broader S&P. 
So this is a company that now, at a moment in time, has a refreshed management team, new CEO, new CFO. They have new chairman of the board. They have new joint venture relationships that they have been able to raise additional capital to develop these data centers. Is this kind of all they do? This is pure play. This is pure play. And they have the, again, the bullseye of hyperscale demand, which is exactly the type of data center that the artificial intelligence servers need you, to be in. You just told me something fascinating while we were on the break. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess the broader question is are there constraints to growth? And you pointed to one, and that is that in Northern Virginia, my old stomping grounds, yes. Uh, the largest cluster of data centers in the country, Dominion Power, Dominion Electric, the company that supplies power there, says we don't have enough power to, to, so you can't build any more data centers. That's right, that's right. So what you're seeing is that demand is growing at a significantly robust clip, yet new supply is challenged right now, and those challenges are stemming from this power availability issue, which is why the underlying need for infrastructure and transmission of power is so important when thinking about really delivering upon these AI goals. How do you measure scale in these in these facilities? Is it by the number of gigawatts or is it by square footage? No, what is it? Really, it? it really is about megawatts and megawatts, gigawatts, right? Megawatts. 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 And megas so, and gigas. Well, what, okay, yeah. <laughs> what you've seen happen over the past, call it, uh, 10 to 20 years is the power densities that is required in these data centers is increasing significantly. And so the megawatts that you need in a data center are significantly more than they had been historically. Just this year, in, or last year, in 2023, yeah. we saw one of the first 200 megawatt deployments for a data center. The largest data centers used to be 20, 30 megawatts. Now we're talking about two to 500 megawatt data centers. That's crazy. This power availability challenge is absolutely going to be an issue that we need to address and solve going forward. You mentioned digital realty as the pure play here. Are there other players that are on your radar screen? There are. Another one that that is very interesting that I'm sure you are aware of and all the viewers here are aware of is Iron Mountain. Oh, yes. I think of them as a paper company. Yes, exactly. Record management is what I like to say. Um, But what they have done is evolve their business and really capitalize on their core competencies to get into digital storage, to get into data centers. And so right now, Iron Mountain has about, call it 10% of their revenues that are um, tied to data centers, and it is growing. And the most interesting part about that is that they trade at about a six to seven turn multiple discount versus that of a pure play data center company. Their cash flow growth is gonna be really Interesting conversation, we'll have you back. Laurel Durkee, thank you so much. Thank you. And that does it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, an exclusive interview with Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. That's ahead on the other side of this quick and quirky break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.